This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. My guest on the podcast today is joining us from Seattle, Washington, Matt Lincoln, director of brewing operations for Fremont Brewing. Welcome to the podcast, Matt. Hey, how's it going? Good, good. This is a, a podcast that I was hoping that we'd be able to do in person this year at some point. Uh, we had actually talked about it last summer, the summer of 2019, when we were hanging out after the perennial festival in, uh, in St. Louis, Missouri. And then, of course, you know, the world changed this past March. And uh, and here we are talking remotely. But um, Fremont has, uh, has been a powerhouse of brewing in the Pacific Northwest, um, certainly uh, reviews well with our blind review panel and has been a past uh, uh, beer of the year for our editors picks for uh, best in beer. Uh, we're big fans of Fremont. You guys have carved out a fantastic space, um, both barrel aged beers, you know, pale ales, using hops, taking advantage of your proximity to Yakima. And I can't wait to talk to you about everything from uh, fresh hop beers to barrel aged beers to, to pale ales and IPAs and more. Um, before we do that, nearly 2,000 breweries across the U.S., Canada, and Mexico partner with GND Chillers. Innovative modular designs and no proprietary parts propel GND ahead as the premier choice for your glycol chilling needs. Breweries you recognize, like Russian River and Nkasi, Jack's Abbey, Samuel Adams, and a bunch more brewers you've heard from on this very podcast, all trust GND to chill the beer you love. Call GD Chillers to discuss your project today or reach out directly at gdchillers.com. This episode is also brought to you by RAR Northstar Pills, a new base malt to set your compass by. RAR Northstar Pills is crafted for brewers looking for a domestic Pilsner malt with low color and low modification. Northstar Pills carries overtones of honey and sweet bread, supported by flavors and aromas of hay and a nutty character. Suitable for any beer style, but particularly craft brewed versions of classic lagers. Let RAR Northstar Pills guide your craft by visiting BSG Craft craftbrewing.com or contact them at 1-800-374-2739. So Matt, talk to me a little bit about your brewing history. Uh, obviously, you, uh, you know, here you are uh, overseeing the brewing operations for Fremont now, but uh, what did your arc in craft beer look like and how did you uh, decide on brewing as a career and then get to the point you are right now with Fremont? Sure. I started off uh, as a home brewer. I think it's a lot of a lot of pro brewers uh, did. I mean, I think I was like 20, 21 when I st first started brewing beer. Uh, Buddy and I uh, were living together, and we bought a kit, and we decided our first beer that we would make would be a barley wine. <laughs> <laughs> all in, go all in. So we were all in. Yeah, yeah. I, I I can't remember exactly how that beer turned out. I don't think it was that great, uh, but. Yeah, that was... Uh, I mean, if you're going to bother making beer, might as well put a lot of alcohol in it. I yeah, guess. yeah, I think that's probably what a 21-year-old 21, 21 is thinking, you know. Let's let's make this huge beer and let's go crazy. Um, so, I mean, from then, we just started, uh, you know, the two of us, we brewed, we did a lot of home brewing together. Um, and I eventually ended up going to culinary school and... Um, 
working in the food industry, restaurant world for a while, mm-hmm. and then got really, uh, I got tired of that. The daily sure. grind and the stress, right. the stress associated with working in restaurants is, uh, it's, it's pretty intense. Uh, had a lot of great times. I actually met my wife in a restaurant and, uh, but decided that that wasn't something I really wanted to spend the rest of my life doing and, um, ended up going through the American Brewers Guild program in 2006. Um, so went through that program and then ended up, um, so my wife, uh, girlfriend at the time, she was moving to Chicago to pursue a master's in architecture. And uh, I'm like, okay, I think I'll go to Chicago too. And ended up doing an apprenticeship uh, through the American Brewers Guild at, uh, at Goose Island Brewing Company. So I ended up at, um, at Goose and basically got hired on in their lab uh, before the end of my apprenticeship. So ended up working in the lab at Goose for, I don't know, five or six months and then uh, moved into the brewing department. And I ended up being there for about three years, roughly three years. So at what point did you uh, get it back out to the West Coast? Let's see, we moved back to um, Seattle in 2009, and uh, that is when I hooked up with uh, Matt Linscombe, who's the owner of Fremont, owner, founder of Fremont Brewing. And, um, you know, I think uh, <clears throat> that was a weird time, too, because that was right, right uh, when the recession had hit, you know, no sure. breweries were opening up. I mean, think about 11 years ago. The brewing world was totally different. (laughs) It doesn't seem like that long, really. Right, right. You know, the amount of change in 11 years has been extremely dramatic. Yeah. Um, Because back then, I don't think, uh, you know, Matt wanted to open up a a production brewery in Seattle. Um, I don't think a production brewery had opened up in probably about, you know, in like maybe five or six years um, in Seattle. it was Georgetown Brewing was probably the last one prior to us opening up. Yeah, we kind of hit it off, and I ended up becoming coming on as the uh, the initial head brewer. There were you know three of us at the beginning, essentially. Right. And yeah, that was eleven years ago. It's <laughs> so square one. Um, you know, as you guys uh, started thinking about the beer that you're going to brew, um, you know what uh, what did that look like? Obviously, the audience for beer was different. Uh, in 2009, 2010, as, as you're getting a business off the ground, um, you know, but at the same time, also being in Seattle, you have uh, interesting proximity. Uh, it's also weird to think that like you were launching a brewery before something like uh, the Citra hop was commercially available. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, I, you know, it's amazing to think that, uh, you know, it's now one of the most dominant hops and in, uh, worldwide growing and certainly among brewing use, uh, you know, but as you, st- you know, I mean, it's a, that's it. Now that I'm, I'm just shocking myself, even just thinking about that Uh, (laughs) and how many breweries, uh, you know, have kind of gone through that phase. Um, but it started, you know, then in those formative years, I mean, you were experiencing a pretty heady time as other breweries were launching and the entire agricultural side of the brewing industry was also engaging in a hefty amount of innovation and bringing new things to the table that created new options, you know, for you all as brewers. But talk to me a little bit about how, you know, that vision from brewing, uh, you know, started with Fremont and then how it's, you know, started uh, continued to develop um, over the years. Yeah. I mean, I think we've always kind of been guided by balance 
and drinkability. Um, you know, we want to keep things interesting, but we also want to have, you know, we want to make beer that people keep on gravitating towards and want to have, you know, one or two, like they have one beer, they want to come back for another one. Um, and that's always kind of been one of our guiding principles, just maintaining that balance. Um, and, you know, I think you can, you can achieve balance in extreme beers. You can also, you can achieve balance in a lot of different ways. Right. Um, but I mean, that's always been one of our principles and, um, you know, we started off making a pale ale. So this is like, just to kind of give you an idea of what, that was our flagship, was a pretty traditional pale ale that had been like a, uh, one of Linscombe's, uh, Matt Linscombe's homebrews. Um, so we kind of did a riff on that and, you know, it was mostly Cascade yeah. and, um, you know, it had some, had some caramel malt in it. And, uh, and that was the only beer we made for the first, like, couple of months you know as a production brewery and then we started came up with a with an ipa and the one thing is for our for ipas we kind of started off we didn't really want to um go in the typical northwest direction of using caramel malts and making a darker ipa so and i think that that was kind of kind of at the beginning where folks were starting to you know move away from using c60 and caramel malts especially in right. the pacific northwest where that had been like you want to think about you know, your standard Northwest IPA was pretty, pretty dark, very malt forward, really right. super piney. But we kind of wanted to move away from that. We weren't huge fans of C60 or caramel malts that much and wanted just to focus more on the hops and like had more of a bright citrus quality than like that more of a heavier caramel malt character. Right. So, you know, that's in our, that ended up being our first IPA that we put out was uh inner urban ipa which is still our still our best-selling beer now which is kind of crazy and that's gone through a lot of i mean obviously that's gone through a pretty heavy evolution over the years but let's talk about that evolution uh i'm curious about that uh you know just because i love uh, i mean anyone who listens to the podcast knows that this is one of my favorite subjects to talk about how um Rest, uh, beers have to change in order to stay the same um, mm -hmm. over time that uh, you know the context that people are uh, enjoying beer in is constantly changing and their perception of things um, you know moves over time because their context changes over time and so mm -hmm. um, you know, let's you know, talk to me a little bit about uh, you know milestones for uh, for interurban IPA if uh, if I mean I know you probably don't articulate them that way but uh, sure, sure what are those you know what do those shifts look like uh, you know from um, from the initial recipe and then uh, you know all along the way I mean they're iterative changes but uh, mm -hmm. looking back on them what do they look like yeah, that's really interesting. I would uh, love to do an exercise where sitting down and looking at brew sheets over yeah. the course of like a decade, you know? Um, I mean, honestly, the one thing that has remained relatively consistent is uh, we have used, which is kind of astounding, is Amarillo, Chinook, and Centennial in that, in that beer since the beginning. And I think a lot of it is uh, focusing on the malt profile yeah. uh, to back off on a lot of the specialty malts, you know, backing off on uh, Munich. Uh, we used to have a lot of honey malt in there, uh, moving less, you know, getting moving away from, from more of a sweeter profile. Um, and then focusing just on bright hop quality and bright hop character and moving, I think, 
you know, moving most of the hopping to late editions, you know, moving to mostly Whirlpool editions, you know, beefing, increasing the overall dry hop. I mean, I think when we first started, that beer had a pretty low dry hop. And now, you know, gradually over the years, we've increased that dry hop, you know, as, you know, as the consumers, you know, and our own personal taste for that matter, we right. want to have more hop character. I mean, we still want to make it more I, aromatic I, rather than bitter hop character. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Focusing more on aromatics. And, uh, but I think one thing we've also, we like about that beer is we have kept it pretty bitter. I would say pretty bitter in terms of, you know, where a lot of, uh, IPAs are at where a lot of folks have been kind of moving in the other direction, we've decided to keep that one relatively bitter. I mean, we also... In, in terms of, uh, you know, calculated IBUs or measured IBUs, where do you, where does it tend to land? Yeah, it's like around 70, 75, oh, wow. yeah. somewhere in there. So, and, the, and it definitely has more of a lingering, um, more of a lingering bitter finish. And that's kind of, we kind of want to keep it that way. Yeah. You know, and I think that, um, I think that that's, that, you know, for the most part, people seem to to enjoy it. I mean, which was really interesting. That beer, we were, we definitely had seen sales decline a little bit for IPA until the until COVID hit, hmm. and um, Interurban really started to spike, especially like twelve packs, obviously, and six packs. But kind of one of those situations where it's a familiar brand for people. They they know it, and it's something that's you know you can come back to over and over again. And it's, I think we've tried to keep it, even though the bitterness is a little bit on the high end, we still try to maintain that overall drinkability too, where you can, you know, yeah. you want to call it a sessionable IPA without being like four and a half percent. Let's, you know, and I imagine you've probably um, worked on tweaking the kind of quality of that bitterness over time. And I want to ask you about that. But first, uh, tired of the trial and error carbonation processes? Then look at Quantiperm's innovative automated carbonation systems for precise carbonation. These systems handle wide flow ranges to accommodate all your beer, wine, soda, or cider styles. You can even carbonate and directly send the product to a packaging line without tankage. Besides carbonation, Quantiperm offers robust and economical systems for nitrogenation and water deoxygenation. All of their systems have an easy-to-use graphical user interface with reports and graphs that you can pull up on your mobile device. Visit Quantiperm.com for more information. Also, Grandstand is your source for the latest trends in custom-printed drinkware, apparel, and promotional items. They make your job easy by serving as your one-stop shop for everything. Visit egrandstand.com forward slash lookbook to see what's trending. I love that idea of maintaining a hefty bitterness in your IPA, um, you know, but how, you know, over the last number of years, have you worked in terms of, you know, the way that you're adding that bitterness and, and accomplishing that? Has that changed um, uh, over time um, in terms of hop selection, in terms of, you know, uh, moving when and how, what kind of hops you're using uh, in order to produce that bitterness? Um, yeah, I mean, we're mostly, we're getting most of our bitterness from Whirlpool editions. Really? Um, mm -hmm. I mean, we do a, pr a relatively, relatively large Whirlpool edition. Um, 
and then and we figure in our in are our you lives. whirlpooling then are you adding those as you start while it's still at an isomerization kind of you know temperature then or definitely it's like okay. on our on our big system uh which is an 80 barrel brew house you know we figure we're still getting at least 15 percent utilization in the whirlpool okay so we're still getting a pretty hefty um amount of bitterness from there and we still use you know traditional you know 60 minute boil edition i think we also have a 30 minute you know that's also something that you know we've altered over the years where we've gotten away from more mid boil editions and focusing more on just larger uh whirlpool editions um why is that uh just to maximize aroma you know trying right. to get as much trying to get as much out of the hops and as much aroma, focusing more on that aroma, you know, still maintaining that bitterness, but focusing on aromatics, you know, yeah. and, and maintaining, you know, uh, just a, or just ramping up the amount of aroma that we can get out, out of those beers. And you're still yeah. getting all the bitterness that you want out of it, but it's mm -hmm. just also adding that air, you know, extra aromatic character and not beating it up and boiling it off. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of what's helped out over the years, too, is, uh, is just different process changes. You know, I think that having that I see as one of our greatest accomplishments over the years is fine tuning all of our processes to make sure that we're achieving consistency and we're maximizing, you know, maintain we can maintain hop character. Yeah. And also, um you know, coming from a production brewery standpoint too, making sure if you, you know, kind of process is kind of king, you know, and it's really key to keeping things rolling and maintaining that consistency. So I think that is really, that's really helped out as well, as far as, you know, aside from recipe development, it's all right. that, you know, that downstream uh, care that we take with a, with a, with the wort and the beer once it's, once it hits the fermenter. And we've, I mean, that's, been some of our main focus over the years has been you know quality and consistency and we've put a lot of a lot of effort into that what have uh what, let's talk about some of those changes that have uh, paid the most dividends for you with hoppy beers um you know in terms of those kinds of process changes what um you know as, as you're thinking about it what have been some of those most impactful uh you know kinds of process shifts um i think a lot of it has been yeast management Okay. It's been really helpful. Um, we've done a, we put a lot of effort into, uh, into managing just how we, how we use our house yeast. We've been using it for like 10 years and it's, a, it's been kind of a, you know, learn as you go along. And especially we've had, we had a lot of issues with hop creep, you yeah. know, starting probably about five or six years ago. And, um, and then finding, you know, ways to get around that and using our yeast, figuring out how our yeast works and operates. Um, our, uh, Are you uh, public about what yeast strain that you use? Um, relatively. I mean, it's an English, <laughs> <laughs> it's an English ale strain that's, okay. uh, that's, you know, that's yeah. widely available. Sure. Um, yeah, so it's an English strain. It flocks out really quickly, so it can be a real high diacetyl producer. So we spend a lot of a lot of time dialing in diacetyl, and then also and then dealing uh, with hop creep. And diacetyl is a huge one for us. You know, yeah. that's I think is like the bane of our existence as it is for most breweries or most brewers. And uh, you know, trying to you know 
minimize that at all costs, not necessarily at all costs, but, you know, because I think that is something that, you know, it would kill hop character too. You know, uh, we've had with diastol production due to hop creep or just, you know, any kind of re-fermentation. I mean, you want to talk about maintaining shelf stability and, you know, the, you know, how, how a beer smells when it leaves the brewery and then you end up with some kind of with, with hop creep in the can or, you know, secondary fermentation, whatever right. happening. And you end up with diastole bombs down the road. Um, that's something we've always wanted to avoid. Have you, have you done any studies on, uh, I mean that, that you're definitely talking about, a uh, above threshold level of diacetyl, you know, making a flavor impact. And we're all familiar with that, but have you ever looked mm-hmm. at, you know, through your kind of lab process, what even like slightly sub threshold impacts of diacetyl are on, uh, on sensory, uh, you know, with, with, uh, hops, aroma and flavor. Um, we haven't dug too far into yeah. that. We have our internal thresholds that we have for, so we're testing, we test for diacetyl probably about three, three to four times, or about three times per batch of beer um, prior to prior to crashing, um, and just to make sure that level is really is really low. I will say a shout out to our quality uh, quality manager Robert Fulweiler, who has been really instrumental in kind of dialing in our processes and making sure that our whole lab team is really dialed in on everything. Uh, I mean, that's that, he spent a ton of work on that. And we've done a lot of work on, you know, how to use our, one thing we'll do with our yeast to kind of get around some of the issues of hop creep is, you know, we will do a diast after, after fermentation, uh, after primary fermentation, we'll essentially do a diastole test pre dry hop. And then we will, <clears throat> we'll dry hop the beer, we'll drop the beer to about 60 degrees Fahrenheit, drops out some of the some of the yeast and our yeast kind of once it hits 60 degrees it also kind of stops um so it it really doesn't do a whole lot of movement out below 60 degrees so we'll dry hop around 60 degrees um and we find that by doing that we don't experience much of a uptick in any kind of vdk or hop creep so that's definitely been pretty instrumental for us is kind of figuring out that that interplay with temperature and dry hopping and and yeast there and then also uh then we will do after uh, after sitting on the hops at 60 for a couple of days we'll do another uh, vdk test prior to crashing and make sure we haven't seen any uptick in any overall vdk do you, you all centrifuge after that in order to kind of clean it- everything Exactly. Right. Because you still have that. If there's still anything in there, it could still cause issues in a can. But uh, exactly. And I think that's been key for us, too, is, you know, everything, pretty much everything gets centrifuged uh, at the brewery, at least on the production scale. Uh, And then we also have, you know, we do a lot of hazy beer, too. Right. And all all those beers go through centrifuge as well, just to clean them up, remove any yeast uh, so that anything that left is just protein, basically. It's uh, it's such a funny thing that uh, you know this, these hazy styles have such a reputation for being lazy. Well, I shouldn't say they have a reputation. Among certain casts, they have that reputation. But uh, um, it's amazing that you can keep that stability through that centrifuge process. But uh, you know, for you, you, most of that beer gets canned, 
and uh, you know is shipped out into distribution. And so if it's not stable out there, um, or if there's anything still alive in there, uh, that could have very bad ramifications for you. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean we've had yeah that's you know you mentioned it that being like a lazy style. It's which is funny because we have spent so much brain power on you know just dialing in that that haze you know and making sure that it doesn't drop out and we've had our struggles like i think anybody has you know and i think we we still have conversations about this all the time is like maintaining um you know haze stability because there's such it's such a huge amount of very variables that go in that go into that you know and i think we we try to uh, we try to isolate certain variables but it's it's super difficult uh, and I mean, I still don't think we've found, you know, the magic bullet just yet. I mean, a lot of it is, well, I mean, a lot of trial and error and we've had some, we've definitely had some issues where some of our hazy beers have, have, uh, dropped out in can and we try to backtrack everything and try to figure out why. And it is really, it is needle in a haystack sometimes. <laughs> sure. Uh, I didn't mean to get into a conversation about hazy beer with you. Just uh, there's plenty of folks that we talk to about that kind of thing. Uh, um, but speaking of that, I did uh, uh, grab a four pack of a head full of dynamite fresh hop edition, which uh, is a hazy IPA that you make, but a hazy IPA with fresh hops, which I thought was a really um, fun and fantastic way, uh, you know, to kind of explore hops. And that gives me a perfect segue to start talking to you about fresh hop beers, which I think is one of, uh, you know, in my opinion, one of, one of the most interesting uh, kind of areas that you all play in that, uh, you know, from the field to ferment to the Koichi Canyon, um, you know, kind of fresh hop beers that you all produce every year. And then of course, this head full of dynamite fresh hop, um, you all play heavy in that kind of, you know, fresh hop arena. Um, but at the same time, we're also um, finding flavors in these fresh hops that I don't experience in some other brewers, fresh hop beers. There's a, a brightness and a clarity to, to what you're accomplishing with these that I think is really special um, to the point Thanks. where that's awesome. Yeah. Which is the point where I uh, harass your uh, media PR folks every year <laughs> when it's fresh hop time and like, Hey guys, <laughs> and, uh, and thankfully, uh, uh, you've got some good folks on that side and they, they, they take care of us. And, uh, Fantastic. So, good to know. yeah, so we get to try it, uh, uh, you know, this, but let's talk a little bit about that. You're in Seattle. Um, you're not, you're a few hour drive from Yakima where, uh, you know, pr- which produces the bulk of the world's hops at this point. Um, and it's certainly kind of a center of the hops growing universe. Uh, talk to me a little bit about how you got into making fresh hop beers and, uh, you know, and what, how that kind of process started to evolve early on. Yeah, the um, yeah, I think we're we we love it, man. It's one of our favorite. It's, it's our favorite time of the year. Um, it's been you know we make it really hard on ourselves by <laughs> making a lot of it, yeah. um, which is a, certainly not an easy process and not a cheap uh, process either. Oh my god, yeah, we don't make much money on those beers. It's definitely a labor of love. Um, but that kind of started, I mean, to be, to be honest, I, I wasn't really familiar with Fresh Hop beers prior to moving back to Seattle in 2009 and, uh, you know, had been, you know, brewing at Goose Island for three years and not a whole lot of Fresh Hop beer brewing right. then. And I think that was kind of like right around the 2009, 2010, was kind of around the time where Fresh Hop was becoming a little more popular. I know the the Yakima festival started up around that time, maybe a couple of years prior. 
which is probably one of my favorite beer festivals. Um, but it kind of happened um, in this really awesome organic way where we were kind of, we were approached um, kind of out of the blue by a hop grower, um, Brad Carpenter, who is like a, you know, fifth or sixth generation hop grower. Yeah. Come on. And from Carpenter Ranches, and they're one of the primary owners of uh, YCH. And one of the first families of hops in, in Yakima back in the 1800s, yeah. Yeah, exactly. They've got their uh, their farm over in Granger on Carpenter Road, you know. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> been there for a long time. And uh, Brad kind of called us up out of the blue, and he had, this is like six months after we had started brewing. And uh, he's like, he said, you know, we've got this project we're working on. We've got this little plot of land in uh, Kawichi Canyon, which is this little area outside of, this beautiful area outside it of It is beautiful, yeah. Oh, it's incredible. And uh, there he was working with um, uh, Ron Britt, who owned their land. He's an entomologist who works really closely with a lot of different growers on pest, con- pest control. And they wanted to... They, or they basically thought that Citra and Simcoe would be excellent candidates to grow organically. And they wanted to basically partner with a brewery that, sa- that was into organic hops um, that shared some of their values around sustainability and, um, and work with them on growing these hops. And they kind of they thought they basically just asked us out of the blue if we'd be interested. And I was, you know, kind of floored. I'm like, Yes, that sounds amazing. <laughs> <laughs> this sounds like an excellent opportunity. So the two of them and a, a couple other, uh, I think Brad's brother and one of his sons and, and Ron all came up to the brewery. Like it was like November, December of twenty or two thousand nine, and uh, we all sat down and had a conversation. And you know, kind of the rest is history. We've essentially been working with them every year for the last uh, ten years to make the Quichi Canyon. Uh, fresh hop beer. So essentially it's all, it's all organically grown Citra and Simcoe and it's not a lot of, it's only a few acres. Uh, everything that comes off of that comes out of Kawichi basically comes to us and goes into the Kawichi Canyon fresh hop beer. Um, a couple of few years ago, they, they added mosaic and then they also added Equinot. So, uh, now there's four varieties out there and it is, uh, that was kind of started our whole, uh, foray into fresh hop brewing. And I think we've, I think that first, we learned a lot making that first beer. And then we've had to adapt as we've gotten larger and moved into different size brew houses. I mean, now we, we fresh hop brew on an 80 barrel system, you know, we're, and, you know, when we're doing fresh hop beers, we'll do, we'll, um, on the big system, we'll do two brews a day, basically. And, uh, use our our mashed uh, mashed lauder or our lauder ton as a as a as a hop back, and it is uh, makes for some pretty grueling brewing to get all those yeah. hops into the lauder. Uh, we do mostly all of our fresh hop additions on the hot side, uh, especially in those kind of volumes where we're brewing. You know, we're filling a 240 barrel tank over the course of two days. Um, it's n- not really feasible to do a whole lot of cold side uh, fresh hop additions. Yeah. So we focus all on hot side. 
before we talk more about technique, what is the um, business of working with uh, a carpenter on this look like? You know, if they are planting these, to, you know, are you guaranteeing to buy the entire crop? Um, mm-hmm. You know, is there a, an array? I mean, you know, it's also an agricultural product and things can be good and sometimes things might not work out as well as they can. Um, what kind of guarantees from a brewery perspective are they looking you know, for with you in order to kind of move forward on this kind of thing? I'm just curious about, uh, you know, just what that relationship looks like and how you work directly with them to to give them the guarantees they need, but also give you the hops that you need. Sure. Yeah. I mean, that's, um, that's, that, that's, I mean, we basically, we buy pretty much everything that comes out of there pretty much guaranteed every year. And we would, we've been talking for years about expanding that and making, you know, potentially adding some acreage down there. Um, but yeah, we take, we take everything that comes out of there and it's definitely uh, yield is variable year to year. I mean, it is, everything is organically grown out there. Uh, so you're definitely a little more at the mercy of uh, weather pests and whatnot. But for the most part, it's been pretty darn successful. We haven't had too many years where we've had much less than expected, but we essentially adjust our brewing to the overall yield, hmm. you know, and then like, you know, this year, you know, we, we kind of have an estimate about what we're, uh, we had an estimate about, um, you know, where we we're going to land yield wise and it came pretty close. And <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, yeah. we're like, you know, basically the day of harvest, um, we're kind of adjusting our brewing plan. Um, and because it is, you know, the, because it is in this can this remote canyon, it pro- you know the harvest itself provides a lot of you know a lot of challenges, and they actually have built custom machinery to go up there uh, and and sort and and sort the hops right on site. It's pretty amazing. So I mean, I guess that I you know because they built this custom machinery and everything, I guess that shows a level of commitment that we all have to this project, you know. And I think ultimately for me, this is like this kind of relationship, which has been just awesome. And we, you know, every year we go down and we have it, except for this year, we go down and we have a a big um, picnic barbecue where we walk the fields in like in August and we bring a a ton of our people down. We've got folks from Carpenter Ranches. We've got Ron Britt and his family. And we've also got, you know, folks from Yakima Chief, Yakima Chief Ranches. They're all involved in this whole project, too. Yeah. Um, and to me, that's kind of, I mean, I think about the reasons I got into brewing. I think this is probably, this keeps me brewing. You know, it's those kind of relationships with, you know, the folks that are making, that are making the products that go into your beers and, ha- and having those kind of relationships. So it's, this to me is kind of like, it's one of my favorite things about, you know, especially about being at Fremont that we get to do stuff like that. For sure. For sure. I want to talk to you about how you all build recipes around it. Obviously using fresh hops is different uh, in terms of calculation and impact of those hops than using dried hops. Before we do that, ABS commercial is excited to be a part of today's podcast. ABS is a full brewery outfitter offering brew houses, tanks, keg washers, and small parts. 
ABS wanted to do something fun for the craft beer industry, so they're giving away an ABS Keg Viking Keg Washer live on December 5th, which also happens to be National Repeal Day. To enter, go to www.abs-commercial.com, click on the Keg Viking page, and fill out the contest form for your chance to win. Also, Craft Beer and Brewing's all-access subscriptions give you a year of the print and digital editions of the magazine, plus access to our library of video courses, a special deep dive email only for all access subscribers, premium content, and all access exclusive merchandise. Subscribers are the first to see every new issue, including our annual best in beer issue that's out now. Go to beerandbring.com, click on the subscribe button, and join now. So, Matt, as you guys are uh, you know designing uh, beers that use you know fresh hops, um, what kind of internal math do you use to convert between impact of of dried hops and fresh hops? Um, we started off kind of like with a, you know, after talking with some other brewers that had done it, uh, getting some basic guidelines, especially when it comes to bitterness, where it's like, you know, five pounds of fresh hop to one pound of, of pellet or something like that when it comes to bitterness. But we've kind of thrown that out the window. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Sure. As we kind of like... As we've tried to focus more on just overall um, aroma impact, you know, and we keep on going bigger and bigger and bigger and kind of just trying to get like to, I guess, trying to find some kind of saturation point. Um, and I think it's it's partly just we think it's interesting, you know, to yeah. see how much more flavor you can get out of these hops. And, and how much not, more expensive you can make this beer. How much more, yeah, how much less <laughs> cost effective and, you know, how how much more can we make our poor CFO cry? Right. Uh, <laughs> because when, when we were doing, uh, I mean, when we did our Field of Ferment series, we're still doing that, but that was, right. a, that was a seasonal beer and we made an incredible amount. We did like, I don't know. I think last year we kind of topped out. We probably did about 2,500 barrels of that beer. And that result, it was, I think we brought in over 70,000 pounds of fresh hops. Oh my gosh. It was ridiculous. That is ridiculous. Uh, it was ridiculous. And we kept on putting more and more into it uh, just to keep ourselves interested and not try to repeat ourselves. And kind of just, you know, we want to also just keep on seeing what we can do to make these beers better. I mean, that's always been a kind of a driving force for us too. never really resting on our laurels too much, trying to keep on improving and that constant improvement kind of mantra. Sure. Um, do you have a, do you have a ballpark where you might be right now in terms of pounds of fresh hops per barrel of beer or? Yeah. So let's see, we're probably around for like field of ferment and Kawichi. It's probably about 20 to 25 pounds per barrel. Wow. And then for that fresh hop, a head full of fresh hop, we kind of went off the deep end a little bit. And that's <laughs> like 30 to 35 pounds per barrel. Now, and th- I mean, thankfully, that's wet, you know, weight, not dried weight. Um, right, yeah. right, right. <laughs> but, but it's uh, a lot. It's a lot of like just the the logistics. The logistics are kind of crazy, too, about organizing all these, working with really closely with our vendors to uh, get the trucks scheduled, uh, you know, have because uh, they're all they're they're basically harvested in the morning. There's a refrigerated truck waiting there as they're harvested. They're usually driven right into the truck and then sent on their way. 
so that we can use them as quickly as possible. You know, we're trying to get them in, we're trying to get the, uh, the hops into the wort within ideally, well, definitely ideally within 24 hours, but a lot of times it ends up being that first load ends up being like six to eight hours after they're off the field. I mean, my quick math, if, you, if you're looking at 35 pounds per barrel and an 80 barrel batch, I mean, you're, that's what, 2,800 pounds of hops? Yeah, that's, that's a lot. That's a lot. That's, I mean, how do you even fit that in a, a louder ton? Um, uh, I, should sh- I can show you the pictures. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's, being, it's a lot. I mean, yeah, we, uh, yeah. yeah it's, it's, it gets pre- it's pretty challenging, too, because it also, you know, it's there's a lot of, you know, it's... It's challenging and it's interesting for the brewers. I mean, I say interesting and challenging. They're probably going to say giant pain in the ass. Because yeah, uh, <laughs> challenging it, it when take... other people do it. It's uh, yeah, right, right. It sucks and, uh, when you have to do it yourself. <laughs> At least we can use like when we used to when we used to have a fully manual system. You know, it requ- it's a lot more labor just getting the hops out and everything. Now yeah. we we utilize our our same spent grain system. Uh, to remove the hops as we do, you know, spent grain. So that yeah. makes it a little bit easier. But and we've and we've you know developed different means of getting hops up to the brew deck and then into the lauder ton. And I think lot, now it's definitely a lot easier than it used to be. But it's still an incredible amount of hops. Yeah. And to me, I think of some of my favorites that we've done. I think the new that head full of fresh hop that you got. I thought that was a pretty good example of kind of like pushing the, the the most amount of hop character into a beer that you possibly can. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. It was, it's pretty intense. And I, I think it's still, you know, thinking, keeping that, the balance idea still there. I think it was still relatively balanced too and ultimately drinkable. So I think that's, that being our, our goal, you know, I think, right. we, I think we came pretty close. Let's so w- as you load those hops into a ladder ton, uh, are you dropping temperature at all? Are you throwing, you know, just moving out of the kettle at, uh, um, you know, the, at, at normal temperature coming out of that? Um, what does contact time look like, you know, and how do you, you know, flow through? Um, obviously, you've got a, you've, I mean, that many hops is an incredibly expensive uh, proposition. And you want to find some way to kind of maximize that contact and extraction and kind of capture mm-hmm. that, but you also, um, you know, have to keep things moving too. What does what does that process look like? Uh, sure, we'll essentially add. So it takes a while to add all the hops. We lift them up onto our brew deck. They come in what's called a Gaylord, which is like an open top cardboard box. Um, and then we have a. Uh, kind of like this this hopper that affixes to the the man door of the lauder, and we end up we have essentially a, a pulley system that or an automated pulley a winch system that lifts lifts those hops and dumps them into the lauder. So we'll end up doing that while the typically while the uh, we're still in the latter stages of the kettle boil. Um, the work gets transferred to the whirlpool, and and then we trans. There's a quick rest in the whirlpool just to drop out any uh, protein because we don't use a whole lot. There's very little uh, pellet that we use at all, really small amount. And then 
But you do use a little pellet. What what for? A little bit, mostly just to keep the foam down in okay. the uh, in the boil. So it's not really much of a bitterness charge. We're getting most of the bitterness just from the. I mean, the incredible amount of hops <laughs> that we put in there. Right. So that's where the primary bitterness is coming from. And then we will will start transferring into the lauder. Uh, we basically designed the brew house uh, so that we could specifically do this by just a couple adding a couple soft hoses. And uh, so we'll pump it into the water where the hops, the hops are already in there. And as soon as the, the wort has covered, you know, maybe a, a half or a quarter, or essentially still that hop bed starts to float, we'll turn on our raking system hmm. and start. Right. And basically start spinning everything. Sure. Because you've got so much matter in there. We're trying to break up the hops so you can get everything exposed to the wort. And then we'll, that whole transfer process from the whirlpool to the water takes you know, probably about 20 minutes, 25 minutes. And then we'll do a rest in the, in the lauder for a little bit of time as the rakes are still spinning. Um, and then we'll just start knocking out of the lauder directly to our heat exchanger and into a fermenter. Are you, uh, keeping the, that louder ton at a temperature or are you just allowing, uh, you know, the temperature to drop as it, uh, you know, sits in there? We're just allowing it to drop. I yeah. mean, basically, because there's so much hot matter, you're instantly knocking your right. the temperature right. down probably about 20, 25 degrees. Yeah. So, I mean, I think otherwise, you know, I think we'd be getting a lot more extraction. Yeah. I mean, that those beers would be way too bitter and undrinkable. But since the, you know, since we are knocking that temperature down a lot, uh, just in that the transfer process and hitting the what right. are usually pretty cold hops too, so that brings the whole temperature of the wort down, probably into yeah. like the one one eighty range somewhere around in there. Yeah. Um, and so, how long does how long do you let that spin with the rakes uh, before you start knocking out? Uh, maybe about ten minutes, ten oh, to fifteen yeah. minutes. Okay. Then we'll start. No, so not too long. We also don't want to pick up too many off flavors or D any kind of DMS just from it sitting too long sure. in, the, um, in that danger zone in the water. Yeah, exactly. So we try to, we don't want it to sit in there for too long. And usually we find that that ends up, if we move it out that, that fast, you know, it, it doesn't become much of a factor. Yeah. Um, so it takes, you know, another to fully knock out in the fermenter, maybe another 35, 45 minutes around there. Do these um, beers uh, ferment in a different way than you would uh, fr uh, find from a, an, a you know, regular uh, IPA or pale ale? Uh, sometimes they do. They take, uh, I think it's pretty hard on the yeast. Um, huh. All of the, we're, I, we're, you know, jury's still out a little bit. All the polyphenol content that we're put, that ends up going into these beers, um, we end up also, we... We try to combat the, uh, it, we usually get quite a bit of a pH rise in these beers. So mm -hmm. we try to combat that a little bit by adding uh, FOSS to try to knock the pH down a little bit. But usually it ends up being kind of harsh on the yeast. We, it takes a little while for uh, VDK reduction. Um, but for the most part, we can still get a pretty, we still get a pretty solid fermentation. Yeah. Uh, and you say you don't dry hop with fresh hops through these beers. Do you dry hop with pellets or anything else or is it just um, what you get out of that whirlpool side? So we do dry hop. So oh, okay. we'll typically, yeah, we do. And it's not a, you know, it's, I guess it's maybe about a, anywhere from a pound to two pounds per barrel. We'll do a dry hop just because that's, 
that's what we've come to enjoy. Yeah. Um, we kind of like that combination of the fresh hop character in addition to that pellet character as well. And we yeah. think, I mean, that's the kind of beer, that's the kind of fresh hop beer that we like. Um, you can make awesome fresh hop beer too without doing any kind of dry hopping. It's a little different character. Um, but we, we've just grown to, to like that dry hop component. And for years, I mean, we basically started off we would, I think the first year that we did it, um, that first Kawichi batch, we actually used some Kawichi uh, hops that we had held on to for a little bit and then used them in the, uh, just in a giant body bag, essentially, and threw it into the, threw it into a bright tank. It worked out okay. It made a, a definitely a more of a tea-like quality mm. in the finished beer. You get more of that grassy tea-like quality, um, which we like too. But we, for overall ease of production, and I think it also, for our palates, we kind of enjoyed more of that, you know, more of a traditional dry mm -hmm. hop character to those beers. Yeah. We thought it complemented that, you know, that grassier tea quality, fruity quality from the fresh hops. Yeah. From a sensory perspective, I love how you're, you're talking about these. How do you describe the fresh hop flavors that you get out and the aromas that you get out of, uh, this plot of, uh, Citra and Simcoe and others, uh, uh, compared to, you know, say the, uh, batches of, of, uh, that you might make of similar beers using, uh, typically dried kiln tops. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, definitely. I, I get a lot of, uh, tea uh herbal um grass and sometimes and a lot of the times too i get like um an actual um like field like hot yeah. field aroma you know where it because it's very it's a very specific thing walking through a hot field and you just right. smell these you smell the hops and it's just a little bit of a different character like i know um, what I, what, what I always think back to is certain, and certain nights being in Yakima when they're doing uh, hop processing yeah. during harvesting in the, if you're downtown Yakima, while <laughs> all the processors right. are actively pelletizing, like some of the first rounds of the of harvest, it is like, it's pretty incredible. Like the, uh, that aroma that just kind of permeates the air. Right. And, and it's hard for me to describe that. <laughs> sure, sure. I know um, I know exactly what you're talking about. I was out there in 2016, right at the front end of like the first week when they started harvesting. They hadn't started pelletizing yet, but walking through the fields and then walking through the, you know, kilning facilities and then, mm -hmm. you know, mounds of dried hops, uh, you know, waiting to be baled on the other, like there is that, there is a certain smell to it. And I didn't, un until I did that, I didn't understand what brewers meant when they would describe to me that, you know, a certain beer tasted or smelled like a hops field. But then after yeah. experiencing it, you kind of see the, oh, that's what that meant. And yes, you're yeah. right. Yeah, like it really does capture that kind of live vibrancy um, and that kind of, you know, organic material, you know, um, it is, it provides a context to some of those citrus flavors um, that also feels like the green matter in addition to the, those kinds of things. And it creates this rounded balance to it that uh, I think is just so fun and, and fascinating, but also celebrates that agricultural side and this kind of origin of hops as this agricultural product and not just 
this ingredient that's going to make things taste like all these other things you know that we tend to compare it to and I, yeah i think that's a a fun oh, yeah a fun piece of this um are there any other experiments with uh you know fresh hop beers that you've been engaging in or uh uh or you know testing or trying or uh you know is there another direction that uh, uh you see things moving uh, that you want to you know test out in the future um we've been doing more moving back to um you know doing some more cold side fresh hop um and we we did an experiment last year uh we had or we were trialing out a new piece of equipment uh, from Mueller. It's like a infuser. It's an inf it's used for infusing ingredients, and you can also use it for dry hop additions. And we tried it out with uh, with a couple of different fresh hop beers, and uh, it was it had some pretty fantastic results. Where it was like it definitely took that you know that hop field harvest aroma. Uh, those grassy, um, more chlorophyll kind of characters and really, really amped it up quite a bit. So we could, I think the jury was kind of out if it was overkill, right. maybe a little too much. Um, but we definitely found it extremely interesting. And that was something that we'll probably do some more experimentation with. We actually were, we trialed that piece of equipment and we ended up ultimately buying one that's going to be here in the next, um, next couple of weeks, actually. Hmm. Um, primarily being used for uh, our barrel aged beer right right but we're also i mean it has multiple uses and that was something that was really interesting last year and i think one thing we always try to do is we have you know we have several different brew houses now and we also we have a three and a half barrel system that we put in about a year ago that's our pilot system so we did several uh one-off fresh hot beers this year trialing out new varieties that we hadn't played around with so that's always exciting yeah, um, yeah, and I think every, I mean, for that, um, head full of fresh hop and then we ended up using, um, Talus or HBC 692, which right. had become one of our, uh, favorite hops to come out over the last couple of years. And this was the first time we'd ever used it. We're like, well, let's do it. Let's go for it. You know? And that's, <laughs> that is one of the exciting things about fresh hop beer too, is every year we try to at least use a hop that we've never used before. Right. Um, because it keeps things interesting and we want to see what these hops, the different kind of qualities they bring in a fresh hop beer. How, from, from a, you know, as I'm starting to think about this, like how do you maintain, you mentioned you're trying to brew with these within six hours or so of when they're harvest harvested, but you know, that creates a crazy logistical challenge when you're doing you know, as many as 2,500 barrels of a fresh hop beer in terms of how you harvest. Are, are you using some ways of keeping fresh hops fresh? Uh, or are there any other kinds of means of, uh, of maintaining that other than just having them uh, harvest and then drive them out and brew and working out that kind of logistical challenge? Yeah, I mean, we, um, we've, we've worked a lot with our, uh, with YCH and, uh, the Yakima chief ranches over the years and trying to like really perfect that. And cause we've had some fails too. Yeah. I mean, kind of when fresh hop was a little bit, was kind of in, in its infancy, you know, we had, we lost a bunch of hops because they're improperly stored. Uh, they, I mean, they have a tendency to start to compost pretty quickly unless they are, right. have, are able to breathe and are cooled down really quickly. We found that, you know, if we, if you can harvest them in the morning, if they harvest them in the morning before uh, they have a, the fields have a t any chance to heat up, 
uh, it's you set yourself up in a much better situation hmm. for those hops to last longer once you get them into refrigeration. So that's always our goal. We try to we we try to have try to only get hops that have harvest, been harvested in the morning. Well, that's and just they, yeah. that's easy. Yeah, yeah, that's easy. <laughs> you guys aren't needier or anything like that. <laughs> So, and then they immediately go into uh, a reefer truck, uh, or sometimes they'll go into like a secondary storage if a farm, whatever farm that we're pulling them off of has uh, cold storage on site. Yeah. And we try to keep that as low as possible. And then when they get into the reefer truck, we keep it right a little over freezing. So mm -hmm. it's like trying to get those as cold as possible. Yeah. Um, and then for that first batch, we're usually ended up. It'll be about a it'll be about a six to eight hours after harvest, sometimes sooner, and then for the next batch, uh, because we don't brew overnight, we'll hold on to it in our coolers that are at about thirty five degrees, and then brew with them first thing the next morning. So they end up being around twenty four hours off yeah. the uh, off the fields. But that kind of chain of uh, of cold storage makes a, a huge difference for oh, you. it's huge, and I think also the amount of you know, working with YCH on, you know, proper fill height inside the Gaylords and, you know, so that they're not being, so that they, they can breathe and cool down, you know, because I think sometimes we've had issues where they get filled too much and then you put your hand in the middle of the, uh, put your hand down in the middle of the hops and you can actually feel the heat. So they'll actually start to heat up in the center. And that's usually a pretty bad sign if that starts to happen. So, and we've, yeah, over the years, like I said, we've had some pretty bad situations where, you know, you're essentially dealing with rotting hops and you end up having to throw out a, throw them out. And, you know, it's an expensive, it's right. super expensive. And we try to minimize that as much as possible. Yeah. And not just from the raw materials, but also, I mean, that many logistics involved and that much orchestration to then lose this thing that you just spent all of this time and uh, an effort on uh, on orchestrating like that uh, oh, just, yeah. that's heartbreaking yeah i mean we'll actually bring in uh, we'll bring in a reefer trailer uh, that will park in our loading bay or one of our loading docks yeah that we just leave at a really low temperature and essentially when the hops come in off the truck usually one of them is going directly one one or half of the load is going directly um, up to the brew house to be brewed with and the other is going directly into this other reefer truck that's at about 35 degrees or so uh ready for the next morning that is um a crazy but beautiful process and i'm uh <laughs> i mean it, I, yeah. it is a labor of love it is definitely a labor of love right and our i think if we didn't have buy-in from all of our staff too like from right. all the way from our warehouse folks to you know brewers packaging uh cfo obviously sure um i think we wouldn't be able to pull it off but i think everyone um i think everyone lo loves these beers and loves just being able to being able to work with such a fresh product and like this whole process that kind of makes, it kind of gets you closer to the source, you know? And I think that's, a, you know, people get into brewing for a lot of reasons. And one of them is because they're just passionate as hell about, um, you know, what they're making and the ingredients they're using. So everyone can kind of feel that connection, I think, during fresh hop season. It's funny because, you know, generally when we talk about uh, terroir and beer, we're talking about, you know, spontaneous and wild beers. But in this sense, um, you really do get to 
reflect the terroir of your region because you have this access you know putting it onto refrigerated trucks is something that not you know the most brewers in other parts of the world in the country can't necessarily do right. um you know it's just not ever going to be economically feasible no. if you weren't as you know relatively <laughs> you know i mean there are certainly air brewers like Bale Breaker and, and whatnot and yakima yeah. and single hill and others that can do that kind of thing um just because they're right there you all are a couple hours past that but it's still um uh, reasonable for you to mm-hmm. kind of work in that way but outside of that or outside of some you know breweries kind of in, in portland and uh uh you know even in idaho where uh you know these this harvesting is happening it's just really hard to even think about you just yeah. don't, you can't even do that and so and i think that's yeah. why it's you know i don't once you get past the Pacific Northwest, there's just much less of, uh, you know, I, I think most beer drinkers just aren't necessarily as familiar with fresh hop or wet hop beers. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of a, it's definitely a regional thing. I think you see more of it now that you have more growing regions sure, popping up sure. around the country. I know a lot of like some of the Michigan hops. I know a lot of breweries in Michigan and Midwest right. are doing more fresh hop beer now too. And, and, you know, the hops companies have grown aggressive about uh, harvesting and flying out, um, you know, fresh hops, uh, which is just also a crazy proposition to uh, oh, yeah. put, put giant boxes of fresh hops onto planes as cargo and get it out so that breweries can uh, can brew with those in the same day. Um you know, but but that's the kind of logistical challenge and cost that goes into these. It's it's really cre- like you don't do it for anything other than the love of doing it. No, and I mean, and, and it kind of goes to show the commitment on the part of the growers and um, the hop vendors, too, because, yeah, it is a crazy amount of work. You know, it's a ton yeah. of work. And you see, like, we'll go down while they're harvesting sometimes, you know, and see the see the hops being, you know, harvested and loaded into Gaylords and then all the work and all the extra work it takes to do that. Um, I mean, it's, I mean, they're in it. Yeah. They, they, they know that it means a lot to us and you know, they're pretty highly committed. Well, you know, and all of the hops farmers that I've met and interact with have that same kind of passion for what they grow Mm -hmm. and they love brewers that showcase that. You know, that that it speaks to their contribution to this whole world of beer and Fresh Hop does that in a way that, uh, um, you uh, you know, other styles of beer don't necessarily do and that it captures that whole flavor of the hop. Um, You know, and so I can see why, you know, they are proud of what they do. And mm-hmm. they want, oh, they yeah. will go to that extra effort to, to kind of push it out there. Um, no, that's, that's fantastic. Uh, you know, we, we haven't talked about barrel aged beers and I did tease that at the start of the podcast because it is something that's, uh, you know, a big part of what Fremont does. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk, let's quickly kind of change gears and talk about your barrel aging. It's, 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 <laughs> it's an abrupt pivot. There's no good segue here. Um, you given me one a little while back with your infuser uh, that I could have seized on to just, uh, you know, just to turn that there, but I wasn't ready to do it yet. So, uh, sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm talking, I'm my mental, uh, inside, uh, baseball, uh, uh, you know, mechanics of how we host this kind of thing are, are sure, all, sure. all out there in full transparency. Um, but, uh, uh, what, so talk to me about this uh, and, and, you know, as a 
bit of background uh you know rusty nail i think is uh, has been one of our beers of the year in the past and this kind of signature barrel aged beer that you make um now you've been doing this for over a decade making barrel aged beers certainly you came out of goose island where you had uh this bat you know where goose island had this long tradition of making uh you know pioneering barrel aged beers yeah um, talk to me a little bit about uh you know the kind of foundation of that program and uh and how it's developed for fremont yeah it kind of started off um where we knew we wanted to get into some kind of barrel aging. Uh, when we first started, we were so cash strapped. <laughs> like it was, it was, it was, it was a rough go that first year. Right, I will right. definitely say that. Um, but we had, uh, we had our, we definitely were committed to it and we had made um, our first winter beer and that we, I think we, uh, it's a sort of abominable ale. It was like an eight percent. It's something we still make now. It's right. called winter ale at a much smaller amount. But it's like an it was like it's like an eight percent beer, kind of like a winter. This is like I don't know if anyone will relate to this, but a, a Pacific Northwest winter warmer, if you will. And uh, and uh, we got some barrels from uh, the same guy, uh, Tom Griffin, who supplied uh, Goose Island. And Tom Griffin is kind of a legend in the in the beer world and a legend um, when it comes to barrel aging. Yeah, prior, I mean, the stories I could tell. Kind of <laughs> <laughs> total, total personality. Yeah, um, yeah. Interesting guy. Anyway, we, we got some, uh, we got, um, I don't know, 10 Heaven Hill barrels from him. Yeah. And and we ended up putting that first beer into these barrels and let it sit for about a year. And that was the first uh, B-bomb, bourbon barrel aged abominable. And, you know, we kind of liked where that beer was, where it was going. But we we made quite a bit of quite a few tweaks that first year and designing beers more for barrel um bigger making them bigger higher gravity higher finishing gravity um and and then it just kind of evolved from there you know yeah. where we stood and just to really starting to focus on um barrel specific beer you know beer designed to go into barrels what is uh let's talk about that what for you all um, what were some of those changes you made to specifically design beers to stand up to that aging process? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we, um, well, we, we knew we wanted that, you know, just more alcohol, basically. Yeah. We wanted them to be bigger. We wanted a higher finishing gravity. We wanted, uh, a kind of fullness as well, you know, like on a fullness on the palate, you know, we didn't want them to be overly sweet, but we wanted them to be able to stand up to the barrel so they wouldn't be overwhelmed by all those, you know, like really strong bourbon whiskey characters that I think sometimes can really take hold and kind of dominate where it just comes off tasting like whiskey or right. tasting like bourbon. And I think that's also one of the things we focus a lot on specific types of barrels as well. And you know, I mean, I I'd definitely say a lot of it came from just working at Goose and a lot of those 
lot of the barrels that they were using then for Bourbon County were Heaven Hill barrels. And I always liked that character, you know, because I think it gave it kind of a smoothness and a richness. The, the bourbon quality or the, the whiskey wasn't dominating. It was more imparting a lot of wood, vanilla, like subtle coconut qualities. You know, and it wasn't like a hit you across the face bourbon character. Um, so we kind of focused on, you know, not only making the beer higher gravity, more alcohol, but then also that barrel selection too. And we found that over the, we found that over the years that we prefer barrels that are a little bit older, uh, oh. that had some, that had, that had been aging whiskey, you know, eight plus years. Um, and this is just, I know there's a lot of there's a lot of different opinions about this out there, but right. I think for us in our process, we've uh, we've just we've always thought that those older barrels just impart a little more of a smooth quality, and they're not as heavy-handed. And sometimes the beer that comes out isn't quite as hot, uh, and it's a little more I don't know, a little more refined, maybe. It's you know, it's always a trade-off because you're not going to get like you know, the longer that that bourbon or that whiskey was sitting in the barrel, the more it's extracting from that barrel as mm -hmm. it goes. Um, yeah. And so you're right. It's, it's generally the conventional logic is that it is a more subtle impact than younger barrels, which tend mm -hmm. to have a little more vibrancy, but uh, you know, potentially that, hotter bourbon kind of character to it uh yeah and it's kind of a balance too i mean yeah. when and we uh you know now that we've got so our program has grown a lot and we're dealing with a pretty huge volume well i, I mean relatively large volumes uh when we're putting these blends together so you know we end up with you know a lot of it comes down to what's what we can get as well so sometimes right. you know most of the time we're we're in that those older barrels, but then we mix in some of the younger barrels too. And I think it does, you know, you're kind of, you know, you kind of are blending to hit a certain target. And we're also, you know, I guess that kind of getting into the whole blending uh, topic as well. We end up doing, we, over the years, we've kind of modified our process so that we are, you know, blending back um, or when we do our final blends, we're holding, we're adding about a, 10% of the older overall volume is beer that has been in barrel for like 18 to 24 months. Wow. So we are always holding back every year. We'll fill over the course of a few months and then, you know, for the next year's batch. And then we, out of that, we're going to allocate a certain amount to be aged longer uh, for subsequent uh, blends. We found that, that it just, that also creates a little more complexity as well. It makes sense, and it's the same way that goose blenders will age multiple, you know, different ages of, uh, mm -hmm. you know, of lambic in order to add layers of complexity and different flavor. And uh, we even talked about this with even with clean barrel aged beers with uh, Marty and uh, Jim at Revolution, and they're mm -hmm. doing a, a similar kind of thing using that kind of multiple age strategy uh, in their blends. Um, what does that blending process look like for you guys? Are you, uh, you know, tasting barrels frequently? Um, how do you, uh, how do you go about that? Yeah, that's another one that's just kind of evolved over the years too. And especially one of the factors being that we just have so many beer, uh, like barrels that we have to go through. I mean, for a long time we would taste, you know, our, we got to a certain point where we're familiar with these brands and how they're going right. to taste over time. And we can make some assumptions based on that, but you know, every barrel um, 
does get tasted before it goes into the final blend. Um, we, we've modified this a little bit over the last year. Um, but you know, for, for a long time, we would taste, we'd taste every barrel. Each barrel would get a numerical score. Uh, we'd have like several tasters. So each barrel would be tasted by at least three to four people. These were crazy days because we'd have like barrels laid out on the floor. So, and then each barrel would get, each barrel would get individually sampled and plated for micro. Uh, this would be like over hundreds of barrels or a hundred, hundred plus barrels, you know? And since then we've kind of modified that process. We're still tasting all these, all these, um, all these beer barrels, but it's, and we've streamlined it a little bit based on our experience and how, you know, how things have, you know, just how things have worked out over the years and what everything that we've learned. And then we also implemented um, pasteurization about two years ago. So we kind of are, as our barrel program was, was expanding and becoming, you know, I mean, it's such a huge part of what we do uh, when it comes to reputation and also revenue. And we wanted to make sure that, you know, we basically brought that in as an insurance policy. And this was kind of going on after, you know, this is kind of also the result of several other breweries having massive issues with barrel-aged beer. And I think, you know, I think folks with uh, larger barrel-aged programs have all started doing some kind, or a lot of them started doing a lot of uh, pasteurization. And we did a lot of work with that too, making sure that wasn't affecting overall flavor. Yeah. What does that pasteurization process look like? Are you pasteurizing in a tank? Um, or I assume you're doing it that way rather than tunnel pasteurizing out of finished bottles. Um, you know, and then how do you manage that kind of time versus temperature? Obviously these are, you know, floating scale, um, you know, more time at a lower temperature or higher temperature for shorter amount of time, figuring Mm -hmm. out how those impact the, you know, the flavor of the beer as you intend it, um, you know, becomes the brewer's decision. Uh, you know, what does that look like for you guys? Yeah, we try to go pretty, we, I'm trying to think of the exact, the exact amount of time that we're going through our pasteurizer, but it's a flash pasteurization, Okay, you know, that we actually built in house. we built this pasteurizer in house, uh, using our own automation. Um, and, and then also one of our stainless guys helped us uh, put it all together. Uh, but it's, so we've, we spent a lot of time kind of dialing that in and what, you know, kind of uh, ultimately we've tried to get away with the lowest amount of heat, in the lowest amount, you know, right. it is that balance, you know, yeah, yeah. the lowest amount of heat possible. Right. I can't remember, remember off the top of my head exactly what that is, sure, but it sure. is, it, we are going through, um, we go through our fat. Uh, so we rack out of barrels, goes into a fermenter. Um, and then we are sending it through, uh, our flash pasteurizer into a bright tank where it then gets carbonated. And then, and then we go to package after yeah. that. No, that makes sense. Um, any uh, anything interesting that you've learned through your process of of barrel aging beers, or even uh, adding ingredients into these beers after the fact over the over the past year or two? I know that you guys have been playing with fruits, and you've also uh, used some. Um, I think this most recent year, you've gotten engaged in this uh, polarizing approach to using peated and Scotch uh, style barrels oh, in yeah. uh, <laughs> some of your barrel aged <laughs> stuff. Uh, you know, which uh, you know, it's certainly polarizing. <laughs> oh my God, is it polarizing? It's uh, it's great. That's kind of like one of our, um, 
that's one of our favorite things to discuss is uh to pete or not to pete yeah and uh see our our kind of philosophy usually is like well if you're gonna do a peated beer you might as well do a fucking peated beer. Right, <laughs> right. right. Like so, so there's going to be people that are going to love it, and there's going to be people that hate it. Mostly on the hate side. But uh, that's why I will say we don't do a lot of we don't do a lot of peated stuff. But yeah, um, I think that I think what we what we like about that is also you know working with. Um, the folks at Westland Distilling. So Westland is, you know, local Seattle distillery and they make this really incredible uh, peated whiskey. And it's peated single malt whiskey, which is awesome. And they they own their own peat bog. And they, <laughs> yeah. which is incredible. So they have their own, they have their huh. own peat bog that they use to smoke the, uh, all the malt, all the peated malt, which comes from um, Skagit Malting Company. Uh, which is just north uh, north of Seattle, about an hour. Right. And the uh, level of peat quality that that uh, spirit imparts into those ba- into those barrels is pretty incredible. Uh, it does, it is variable. Some barrels are different than others, but we found that um, uh, it's a really interesting, unique peat character, and it is intense. Yeah. Um, we, we've used it in small and we view a lot of the times we'll you will fill some of those peated barrels, um, in, with various brands and then use those as, as blenders and other beers, you know, so that if you want to put a little bit of a smoky quality, so that's right. kind of like, you know, ends up being one of our tools for some of our small batch releases. Um, but then we've also gone whole hog, you know, yeah. gone crazy and like, well, let's make this peaty as hell and and go from there because I think we like it in small doses and we know there are other people out there that do. Um, but that being said, there's not going to be a mass release of a peated beer. I'll definitely say that. (laughs) Well, there's something to be said for having a vision and making beers that aren't, that aren't just for everybody, but are going to be the thing for the people that really love them. And, yeah, uh, totally. And that's, and that's fun. That keeps things interesting, right? You know, you can't be everything to everybody. Well, there's some balance even within your appeal to customers where, uh, you know, you can balance this extreme appeal to a very small number versus Mm -hmm. this appeal to another type of customer on the other side with something else. And so, yeah, we're back to the balance theme again. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Totally. (laughs) Yeah. I I know that in the, uh, yeah, we have been praised and then totally chastised in the same like sentence for like, (laughs) yeah. Well, I love making fun of you for it, but at the same time, I'm glad that you do it because, uh, you know, every more breweries should seek out ways they can do unique things for the the folks that are going to love that thing, even if it's only a smaller amount of, uh, of yeah, totally. folks that are going to dig it. Well, yeah, it's only a very, very niche thing. And yeah, it's, uh, yeah. and it's just, it's fun. Nearly 2000 breweries across the U S Canada and Mexico partner with G and D chillers set your compass by raw North star pills. Quantiperm's innovative automated carbonation systems offer precise carbonation. Grandstand is your one-stop shop for drinkware, apparel, and promotional items. ABS Commercial is giving away a Keg Viking Keg Washer live on December 5th. And subscribe now to Craft Beer and Brewing to support this very podcast. Matt Lincoln from uh, Fremont, thanks for joining me on the podcast. If people want to learn more about uh, Fremont, where do they find you in real life and out there on the internet? 
Let's see, in real life, <clears throat> if you are in the Seattle area, we have our tasting room, the Urban Beer Garden, um, which is in a really awesome location just north of downtown Seattle, right on uh, Lake Union. Uh, very close to Lake Union. And um, so come visit us at the tasting room. Right now, um, that may be harder right, than right. usual, obviously. Uh, but also on the web, uh, freemontbrewing.com. Uh, we're also on the usual social media, Instagram, Facebook, right. Twitter. You know, we're all over. And then you can buy our beer. We're actually in quite a few states now. We're like seven or eight states. For so. sure. Washington, Idaho, Oregon, Cal Southern California, um, Colorado, and Alaska, Montana. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so we're around. Yeah, absolutely. Go out, pick up a four-pack, pick up a six-pack. Uh, if you can grab the fresh hop of beers, absolutely do it. Um, for those of you listening out there, thank you for tuning into this podcast. And uh, we hit an interesting milestone this past week and passed 3 million total downloads for the podcast uh, nice. today, which is kind of cool. And it's kind of scary and weird to think that uh, uh, people have listened over 3 million times to our conversations here over the last 160 episodes of the podcast. Um, but Matt, thanks for joining me on the podcast this week uh i love your fresh hot beers and i love your barrel aged beers and pretty much love everything else that fremont's brews too and it's been really fun to talk to you about brewing cheers yeah thanks cheers this podcast is brought to you by craft beer and brewing magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.